Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Story Updates and a Daughter's Education We had wondered how Charity dealt with a rather harsh letter from her husband, written on September 12, 1845. Would she reply or remain silent for a while? And was Barnum's painful illness, which he described to Fortis Hitchcock at that same time, truly serious? Then there was the matter of his eldest daughter's education, a task among several that Barnum felt Charity was inadequately addressing. Anticipating there would be further discussion in later letters regarding Caroline's education, I had decided to hold off sharing that bit until there was more to tell. Taking the question about Charity first, It seems that she chose the latter course of inaction, though she was not an inveterate letter writer like her husband in any case. On September 17th, admittedly before she would have received the scolding September 12th letter, Barnum wrote to her, I am much grieved and disappointed in getting no letter from you by last steamer. One from Uncle Allenson, however, tells me he believes you are all well. He had not had news from her since she wrote on August 13th, and thus pleaded, Please, write by each steamer, even if it is only a single word. However, nothing had changed ten days later, when Barnum informed Fortis Hitchcock, manager of the American Museum, 
that while he had received his correspondence, I got no letter from my wife, which is curious. Charity seems to have made her point, or felt too unwell to write. Regarding Barnum's illness, a letter to Allenson Taylor, Barnum's maternal uncle, reveals that he had recovered quickly, just two weeks after the dire statements made to Hitchcock. Although we still do not know what he was suffering from, other than a great deal of pain, seated at the pit of my stomach, and causing him to lose weight, the letter to Uncle Allenson on September 27th gives insight on his mental state. Barnum explained, I was more scared than hurt when I wrote you about my health in my last letter. It is now as good as ever. Understandably, feeling quite ill when far from home was worrying, and not helped by a breakneck work and travel schedule. Now, let's turn to Barnum's views on a proper education for Caroline, who, at age 12, needed to embark on a more serious and disciplined course of studies. Barnum himself had had little formal education, and at 15 was working to help support his siblings and widowed mother. He was bright, observant, and driven, however, and had a knack for math, so he was able to make his way in the world with grit and determination, and by age 34 was launched on a meteoric rise to fame and fortune. But for a young woman living in that era, having a good education would have been a necessity to advance in society or be respected by her peers. Barnum was therefore adamant that when Charity returned to America in August with Caroline and Helen, she should get to work on planning Caroline's schooling. Writing to Charity from Bordeaux on August 25th, he said, I hope that dear Caroline is well, and that she will attend a good and respectable boarding school somewhere where she may receive the best moral and mental instruction. I dote much on seeing her receive not only a good education, but an education of morality and pure and virtuous principles. If I should be disappointed in the last case, it would kill me. I think I could bear the loss, but I could not survive the disgrace of my children. God grant that this trial may be spared me. I hope that nothing will deter you from having Caroline complete her knowledge of the French language. She has already acquired the rudiments, and a year or so will make her a perfect mistress of the language. But she must go to school, if possible, where the French language is spoken, and, if it is at all possible, let her roommate be a French girl. I would even be willing to pay the schooling of a French girl for the sake of having her always with Caroline to speak that language. This is very important, and by applying to Mr. Guillaudot at the museum, you could find some respectable French girl to attend school with her. Mr. Guillaudot, a Frenchman, was a taxidermist for the American Museum. Caroline might purchase a French geography and Bible, and in fact pursue all her studies in French, and read French books of history, travels, etc. By this means she might gain general instruction at the same moment that she is learning French. However economical you may choose to be on other points, don't spare dollars nor thousands in procuring the best teachers and books for Caroline's education. She is just now the right age to learn. She has no time to read novels, but she must read history and travels, etc., but let them be in French. Apparently, there had been no news of progress on the matter of choosing a boarding school a few weeks later, despite the guidance Barnum had given. In his September 12th letter, Barnum reproached Charity. My dear, why in the world don't you get her to school? Don't you want her to learn anything? 
do get her where she can pursue all her studies and especially continue her French. My French is improving. It is abundantly clear that Barnum wanted more than anything for Caroline to be thoroughly conversant in the French language. Yet, regarding the subject she should study, Barnum had firm views on gender appropriateness. She can study a little botany and astronomy, etc., he advised Charity, but I do not wish her to devote too much time to such subjects. A superficial knowledge of such sciences is all that is necessary for a female. Writing to his uncle Allenson a month later, Barnum laid out his objectives and simultaneously appears to have yanked the decision-making authority away from Charity. The price of Caroline's education is no object if her facilities for learning are any the better for it. I suppose the only object my wife had in wishing her to go to Philadelphia was the belief that there was a school there where the French was exclusively spoken. If not, probably as good schools can be found nearer home. Of course, I desire her to study the more solid branches of history, natural philosophy, astronomy, and arithmetic. But I am so anxious that she should get the French correctly that I almost concluded it would be better if she could go for one year or more into a purely French school and live with a French family and pursue the above solid branches in the French language. It is hardly possible to acquire the French correctly, except from French persons. However, you know much better than I do what studies are most proper for her, and since you have so kindly volunteered in the matter, I joyfully accept your services and cheerfully leave the whole directions regarding her studies to you, with only one qualification, that is to say, that she must learn French. That language is almost as necessary as the English, and every person ought to be able to speak the two languages. In fact, there were at least two French schools for young ladies in New York City at this time. Madame Chagaret's school located in Union Place at the corner of 15th was considered one of the finest schools a girl from anywhere in the country could attend, if her parents were wealthy enough to send her there. Madame Canada's school, another French school, was located a few blocks northeast of the American Museum, at 17 Lafayette Place. Whether the Barnums were considering either of these schools, we don't know, at least not yet. Since the question of where Caroline would attend a boarding school had not yet been settled, despite it being late September, one can understand Barnum's urgency on the matter. In view of today's pandemic-altered world, I'm sure that if you're a parent or grandparent of school-aged children, you can identify with Barnum's feelings of concern about getting his child in school again and wanting her to make the most of that precious time to learn. So we will stay tuned on this topic and return to it as the letters reveal more of the story. Maybe there will be another letter from Barnum to Caroline herself, with a happier tone than his last. A Most Determined Devotion to Business When people think of P.T. Barnum, his extraordinary achievements in the business of popular entertainment immediately come to mind. First, the success of his American Museum in New York City, and later, The Greatest Show on Earth, which traveled far and wide to impress colossal audiences. As with many things, the proverbial rocky road to success, punctuated with frustrations and failures, tends to be forgotten and left in the dust once success has risen to legacy status. Barnum's early career letters from his tour in France share the tales of that bumpy road, which was both literal and figurative during this critical time in his life. 
He was only 35 years old, and the long-term success of his endeavors was still far from assured. To quote a Barnum phrase in his 1855 autobiography, on page 216, applying a most determined devotion to business was essential to making progress, and if one was lucky, eventually achieving durable success. Working by day and traveling by night, Barnum's schedule was the epitome of the 24-7 work life we refer to today. In previous episodes, we focused on some of the difficulties Barnum encountered after he left Paris and traveled from town to town throughout France, arranging for General Tom Thumb and his entourage to give performances, or séances as they were called in French. Though some of his correspondence bears an optimistic tone, Barnum more often complained about the lack of success, monetarily, on the tour, often claiming dishonesty and deception as the cause. As a result, his desire to return to England, where he felt assured of recouping his losses, grew with each passing day. But he had signed contracts that meant he could not just pick up and leave France without risking arrest. Caught in this web, he had little choice but to proceed and make the best of things, trying to make a profit in the larger towns, while strategizing ways that might legitimately enable him to cut the French tour a little shorter. Letters in the most recent group we have been exploring shed more light on the intricacies of planning General Tom Thumb's performances, as well as the traps that cost Barnum money. For one thing, the woefully inaccurate travel times between towns that Monsieur Roux, of theatrical agents Messieurs Roux et Compagnie, had given Barnum when he was leaving Paris, continued to upset him. You may recall in an earlier letter that Barnum minced no words in telling Roux he had been deceived by him and was heartily fed up with France. He also referred to Roux as a scoundrel when writing to someone else. But Roux was not the only rogue on Barnum's list. Barnum was never short of colorful language when referring to the difficult mayors and theater managers he dealt with in the various towns. For us, however, Barnum's frustrations worked to our advantage, as a result of his providing explanations and tour details that might otherwise have been left unsaid had everything been smooth sailing. Something that invites attention is the list of Barnum's actual travel times between the various towns where he arrived as the advance man for the entourage. Barnum wrote to Roux, You marked in my itinerary that the travel time from Rennes to Brest was eight hours, while in fact it was 27 hours. You marked from Geneva to Dijon 10 hours, but it would take us over 20 hours to post it. From Dijon to Strasbourg, you marked 14 hours, and as it is 310 kilometers, it will take 31 hours. In fact, all the towns range at least double the distance and time marked by you, which has deceived us exceedingly, caused us to lose much time and travel night and day to the injury of our health, etc. The inaccurate travel times affected not only Barnum, but also the 12 people in General Tom Thumb's entourage, who were traveling with three voitures de poste, and four ponies. Barnum calculated traveling at 10 kilometers per hour, 6.2 miles per hour, by diligence, stagecoach. Out of curiosity, our curator Adrian checked today's travel times and distances using Google and found that the actual travel hours Barnum reported to Rue were pretty consistent with the distances, based on the diligence averaging 10 kilometers per hour. For example, Google offers three route options between Rennes and Brest, with distances from 240 kilometers to 281 kilometers, 
and travel times ranging from 2 hours 30 minutes to 3 hours 40 minutes. Since Barnum noted that it had taken 27, not 8, hours to get from Rennes to Brest, traveling 10 kilometers per hour means the route would have covered approximately 270 kilometers, which falls within Google's 240 to 281 kilometer route options. So Barnum was not exaggerating. It's no wonder he was angered by the misinformation, since it cost him considerably more time, out-of-pocket expense, not to mention physical discomfort. Perhaps Barnum took some satisfaction in telling Rue that the play he had written for General Tom Thumb to perform, Légion, was not going to make its debut. Seemingly without glee, he politely penned, I am very sorry on account of the piece Légion, as well on your account as ours. But the truth is the directors will not play it. They all say it is not a good piece. We first tried the manager at Brest. He refused, and all the rest have done the same. I was in Toulon two days ago. The manager had recommended your books of the Gion, but would not play it. The manager at Montpellier also refused. Also manager at Toulouse, etc. Truth be told, Tom Thumb, Charles Stratton, had been refusing to learn the lines of Legion. Yet Rue had told Barnum he would be responsible for the cost of printing the playbooks, 500 francs, if Tom Thumb did not perform the new play rather than his usual Le Petit Poussé. It appears that Barnum had found a way out, since the theater directors were not interested. Writing from Marseille on October 11, 1845, Barnum sent a letter to an unnamed gentleman in Lyon, presumably the person Monsieur Roux had suggested he contact to set things up. Moving up the arrival date of the general's entourage so as to skip the small, unprofitable towns after their stop in Toulon, Barnum informed him, we have made some material changes in our itinerary, and then went on to offer his last and best terms, noting that he would be in Lyon the following week to call upon him for an answer. Among the details, we learn one of the ways Barnum had been cheated. Barnum presented three options. First, General Tom Pousse may perform Petit Pousset five, ten, or fifteen consecutive, consecutive nights in your theater for 1,500 francs per night, provided he may give his exercises once a day in the daytime by paying you 10%, and provided also he may have the use of your foyer for that purpose, if he should want it. Second, we will perform the first week, day, and evening in a saloon hall, without having it announced or known that we are coming to the theater, thus hoping to have some of your subscribers pay to see the general, during which week we pay you the rights of the law, a sunkiem, one-fifth after paying the hospice, after which we will play Petit Pousset five or ten nights consecutive, for half the Rousset Brut, gross receipts, first deducting the rights of the poor, a tax on luxuries to offset the town's cost of caring for the poor, and 200 francs for your expenses. Third, we will commence with you on the 26th, and perform Petit Pousset five, ten, or fifteen nights consecutive for half the receipts Brut, after deducting for hospice. If you accept either of these proposals, you can arrange accordingly, and I will sign the treaty, contract, when I arrive in Lyon next week. If you do not accept, we shall give our exhibitions as we do at present here, and pay you the rights of the poor. Barnum noted that in some other towns, theater subscribers had been able to see the general without paying us a sou, a tiny sum, one-twentieth of a franc, which suggests that while Tom Thumb might have played to a full house, there was far less profit in it than one would suppose.
Thus, Barnum sought to ensure that subscribers would not at first be aware of Tom Thumb performing in the theater and would flock to a saloon and pay to see him. Interestingly, Barnum had noted to Rue his differing opinion regarding the general's daytime performances. I still believe they help his night receipts instead of hurting them. In this situation, that would certainly have been the case. But even aside from outwitting the theater subscribers, Barnum realized that every visitor to the saloon would provide valuable word-of-mouth promotion, bound to increase audience numbers in the theater. Let's hope Barnum's proposals allow him to find better success and satisfaction in Lyon. Novelties and Schemes These days especially, all of us are eager to hear some good news. It seems that P.T. Barnum was feeling much the same way through the summer and fall of 1845. During his tour of France with General Tom Thumb, he had encountered so many difficulties, coupled with health, family, and business worries, that he confessed to trusted correspondents of feeling quite worn down and dispirited. Several episodes have shared his tales of woe, so it's pleasing to discover that in October, Barnum had received heartening news from Fortis Hitchcock, his good friend and the manager of his American Museum in New York. Let's check in on Barnum's copybook letters and see what had cheered him. Barnum wrote to Hitchcock from Marseille on October 12th to acknowledge the recent receipt of his two letters dated September 15th and 18th, 1845. He exclaimed with relief, Thank God! The news has in a small degree revived my spirits. For truth to tell, I have not been myself for more than two months. I am worn down with care and anxiety continually kept on the rack by thoughts of all affairs on both sides of the Atlantic, by fear of the death of my little Helen, and by the most cursed annoyances incident to any man who tries to do business in France. What is perhaps worse than all is that we are making no money, and that fact with ill health and other annoyances make me as miserable as any poor devil need be. The next lines cause a smile, for they point to a possible reason that more than 20 years later, Barnum was so determined to purchase the Cardiff Giant, the 12-foot-tall petrified man unearthed on a farm in upstate New York. The farmer who masterminded the giant's creation and discovery refused to sell his profitable hoax, so Barnum had a copy made, which leads to quite another story. Barnum declared to Hitchcock, The news from the museum is indeed glorious, and to me it is more strange than glorious for I would not have admitted that petrified woman into the museum if I had been there, for I should have supposed that the very idea would have disgusted the public and drove them from rather than into the museum. Now the result proves that I would have been devilishly mistaken, and that in this single case your opinion was worth several thousand dollars more than mine. I confess this candidly, and I believe the same will hold good in many instances and I am very sure that I could not have worked the card to so good and profitable advantage this fall as you have done. Positively, there's no soft soap about this, but it is written from the fullest and most solemn convictions of my heart. In fact, in a letter to Hitchcock just two weeks earlier, Barnum had remarked, I hope you are right in thinking the petrified human body will draw, but I don't think so. Clearly, Barnum remembered the lesson from this, and years later recognized great money-making potential with the Cardiff giant. 
Unfortunately, we don't know what Hitchcock had said to Barnum about this petrified human body, nor are we likely to find out, since Barnum told Hitchcock that his practice was to burn the letters he received from him after they were read. However, looking through the 1849 Sights and Wonders in New York guidebook, which is actually about the American Museum, Adrian turned up a couple of relevant descriptions, and one that may refer to the petrified woman. Page 15 of the booklet states, Here also is a human body found in 1814 at Glasgow, Kentucky, in a salt petrous cave, nine feet underground. A very curious specimen, and in fine condition. It goes on to suggest that the saline properties were the cause of the preservation, and also mentions another display, the foot and hair from a human body, which was found in a copperous cave in the cave branch of Cumberland River, Tennessee. Regarding less grisly attractions, Barnum was constantly on the lookout for both living, animated, and static exhibits in Europe that he thought would appeal to his American audience. He had already shipped curiosities back to New York and engaged individuals to work or perform at the museum. But he continued to acquire and hire more when he could, though ever mindful of getting things at the right price. In a postscript to a letter dated September 28th, Barnum told Hitchcock, I have written to Paris about the trumpeters, but half think I shall not get automaton figures with the trumpet machine, for the figures will cost as much or more than the machine, I fear. However, I'll see. Following up on the plan, he wrote two weeks later, I shall be in Paris next week and will look at the trumpeters, and no doubt get some for the museum. Barnum's museum typically exhibited automatons, though apparently Barnum did not think all were worthy. Writing to Mr. Swift on September 29th, this is the Professor Swift whom Barnum met in London and hired to move to New York and set up the museum to show dissolving views, along with other improvements, he remarked, I don't think so much of the automaton writer as you appear to, and I hope you will not spend too much time in exhibiting it. You can be better employed, and it seems to me a female at a small salary could always exhibit that and at the same time attend to winding up the other automatons. After the proposed few days in Paris, Barnum planned a trip to London to make arrangements for General Tom Thumb to perform there in November. While in London, he hoped to find a new attraction for the museum, implying in his statement to Hitchcock that it might be a live animal. If I can pick up any novelty in London, I'll send it, for I fear the orang, orangutan, a great ape native to rainforests, is dead before this. You was very lucky in getting her. If she can live in a cold climate, she will always be a good card, as long as she lives at the museum. I think she is worth more there than to go to other cities, but of that you can judge best. Procuring more durable exhibits, such as views and panoramas, was always on his mind. Though still on the fence about paying 8,000 francs to have a huge panorama of Napoleon's funeral painted, he was ready to go ahead and commission a series of Revolutionary War views. Instructing Swift, he wrote, I now wish you and Hitchcock to make a selection of Revolutionary views, giving a pictorial history of the battles by sea and land of the Revolution, and you send them to a proper painter in London and have them done at once. You at the same time give me the painter's address and tell me about what I ought to pay him, and I will send to my agent in London and have him paid and have the views sent to you. Barnum seems to have had more enthusiasm for laughing gas entertainment than either Hitchcock or Swift, 
for he wrote to the latter, Why don't you keep up the laughing gas at least three times a week? It always pleases. A couple of weeks later, Barnum directed his manager, My dear fellow, do try once more to find subjects for the laughing gas. If you get good subjects and try it for two weeks and are not satisfied that it pays and pleases well, I'll never mention it again. Observing people inhale nitrous oxide was not a brand new amusement in the 1840s. And perhaps Hitchcock didn't think the draw would be worth the trouble of finding subjects. Keeping both the American Museum and the European tour profitable was no laughing matter for Barnum, however, and he continued to feel the pressure. Through his contact with Hitchcock, he was buoyed by information that the museum was making good money, especially since this would offset the disappointing losses from Tom Thumb's tour in France. In his October 12th reply to Hitchcock, Barnum reflected, I am glad to see that you are in such good spirits, and when I say that I hope, and almost believe, that the old American will clear $20,000 this year, God knows that I hope it quite as much on your account as my own. Then, relating the positive news to his wife Charity, Barnum recounted, I learned from Hitchcock that the museum is doing much better now than it ever was before in its most prosperous days. That's encouraging, and don't look much like running down in my absence. The receipts there for the last two weeks before he wrote were $3,500, averaging $250 per day, and his expenses are not so high as mine used to be. Feeling a bit more uplifted by Hitchcock's news, Barnum added a page to his reply the next day, explaining, I have slept since writing the foregoing, and the blues are partially evaporated this morning, so I am scheming again. At least for a time, Barnum was back to feeling more like himself. I'm sure we'll be exploring Barnum's scheme to acquire Peel's Museum, a plan he had shared with Hitchcock in previous letters, in a future episode as that story develops. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.